Chapter Thirteen, Part Two of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I had kind of a sneaking notion that he'd hurt somebody if they'd ever turn him loose. Lord, but ain't he old lightning? This was a man whom, upon a short acquaintance, I decided to appoint as chief of the scouts. This thrust of professional greatness as the sequel will prove was more than California Joe aspired to, or considering some of his undeveloped traits, was equal to. But I am anticipating. As the four detachments already referred to were to move as soon as it was dark, it was desirable that the scouts should be at once organized and assigned. So, sending for California Joe, I informed him of his promotion, and of what was expected of him and his men. After this official portion of the interview had been completed, it seemed proper to Joe's mind that a more intimate acquaintance between us should be cultivated, as we never met before. His first interrogatory addressed to me in furtherance of this idea was frankly put as followed. See here, General, in order that we have no misunderstanding, I'd just like to ask you a few questions. Seeing that I had somewhat of a character to deal with, I signified my perfect willingness to be interviewed by him. Are you an ambulance man or a horse man? Pretending not to discover his meaning, I requested him to explain. I mean, do you believe in catching Indians in ambulances or on horseback? Still assuming ignorance, I replied, Well, Joe, I believe in catching Indians wherever we can find them, whether they are found in ambulances or on horseback. This did not satisfy him. They ain't what I'm driving at. Suppose you're after Indians and really want to have a tussle with them. Would you start after them on horseback, or would you climb into an ambulance and be hauled after them? That's the point I'm heading for. I answered that I would prefer the method on horseback, provided I really desired to catch the Indians. But if I wished them to catch me, I would adopt the ambulance system of attack. This reply seemed to give him complete satisfaction. You hit the nail squound ahead. I've been with them on the plains when they started out after the Injuns on wheels, just as if there was a going to a town funeral in the States, and they stood about as many chances of catching Indians as a six-mule team would of catching a pack of thieving coyotes just as much. Why, that sort of work is only for fun, for the Indians. They don't want anything better. You ought to have seen how they peppered it to us, and we ain't doing nothing at a time. Some of them was afraid the mules was going to stampede and run off with the train and all our forage and grub, but that was impossible. For besides the big loads of corn and bacon and baggage in the wagons we had in them, that war from eight to a dozen infantry men piled in besides them. You ought to have heard the quartermaster in charge of the train trying to drive the infantry men out of the wagons and get them into the fight. I spec he was an Irishman by his talk, for he said to him, Get out of them wagons! Get out of them wagons! You'll have me tried for disobedience of orders for marching them men in wagons when I've orders but for at. How long I might have been detained listening to California Joe's recital of the incidents of the first campaigns, sandwiched here and there by his peculiar, 
but generally correct ideas of how to conduct an Indian campaign properly. I do not know. Time was limited, and I had to remind him of the fact to induce himself to shorten the conversation. It was only deferred, however, as on every occasion thereafter, California Joe would take his place at the head of the column on the march, and his newest companion was made the receptacle of a fresh installment of Joe's facts and opinions. His career as chief scout was the briefest of nature. Everything being in readiness, the four scouting columns, the men having removed their sabers to prevent the clanging and detection, quietly moved out of camp as soon as it was sufficiently dark and set out in different directions. California Joe accompanied that detachment whose prospects seemed best for encountering the Indians. The rest of the camp soon afterwards returned to their canvas shelter, indulging in all manner of surmises and conjectures of the likelihood of either or all of the scouting parties meeting with success. As no tidings would probably be received in camp until a late hour the following day, Taps, the usual signal from the bugle for lights out, found the main camp in almost complete darkness, with only here and there a straying glimmering of light from the candle of some officer's tent, who was probably reckoning in his own mind how much he was losing, or perhaps gaining, by not accompanying one of the scouting parties. What were the chances of success to the four detachments which had departed on this all-night's ride? next to nothing. Still, even if no Indians could be found, the expeditions would accomplish this much. They would leave their fresh trail all over the country within a circuit of twenty miles of our camp, trails which the practiced eyes of Indians would be certain to fall upon in daylight and inform them for the first time that an effort was being made to disturb them, if nothing more. Three of the scouting columns can be disposed of now by the simple statement that they discovered no Indians, nor the remains of any camps or lodging places indicating the recent presence of a war party on any of the streams visited by them. The fourth detachment was the one that California Joe had accompanied as scout. What a feather it would be in his hat if after the failure of the scouts accompanying the other columns to discover Indians, the party guided by him should pounce upon the savages by the handsome fight settle a few of the old scores charged against them. The night was passing away uninterrupted by any such event, and but a few hours more intervened before daylight would make its appearance. The troops had been marching constantly since leaving camp. Some were almost asleep in their saddles when the column was halted and word was passed along from man to man that the advance guard had discovered signs indicating the existence of Indians near at hand. Nothing more was necessary to dispel all sensations of sleep, and to place every member of the command on the alert. It was difficult to ascertain from the advance guard, consisting of a non-commissioned officer and a few privates, precisely what they had seen. It seemed that in the valley beyond, into which the command was about to descend, and which could be overlooked from the position the troops then held, something unusual had been seen by the leading troopers, just as they had reached the crest. 
What this mysterious something was, or how it produced, no one could tell. It appeared simply for a moment, and then only as a bright flash of light of varied colors. How far away it was was impossible to determine in the heavy darkness of night. A hasty consultation of the officers took place at the head of the column, when it was decided that in the darkness which then reigned, it would be unwise to move the attack of an enemy until something more was known of the numbers and position of the foe. As the moon would soon rise and dispel one of the obstacles of conducting a careful attack, it was determined to hold the troops in readiness to act upon a moment's notice, and at the same time send a picked party of men under the guidance of California Joe to crawl as close to the supposed position of the Indians as possible and gather all the information available. But where was California Joe all this time? Why was he not at the front with his service where it would be more likely to be in demand? Such a search made for him all along both flanks of the column, but on careful inquiry it seemed that he had not been seen for some hours, and then at a point many miles from that which the halt had been ordered. This was something remarkable, and admitted of no explanation, unless perhaps California Joe had fallen asleep during the march, and been carried away from the column, but this theory gained no supporters. His absence at this particular time, when his advance and services might prove so invaluable, was regarded as most unfortunate. However, the party to approach the Indian camp was being selected when a rifle shot broke out from the stillness of the scene, surrounded in the direction of a mysterious appearance, which had first attracted the attention of the advance troopers. Another moment, and the most powerful yells and screams rose in the same direction, as if a terrible conflict was taking place. Every carbine was advanced ready for action. Each trigger was carefully sought. No one is yet being able to divine the cause of this sudden outcry, when in a moment who should come charging wildly up to the column, now dimly visible by the first rays of the moon, but California Joe, shouting and striking wildly to the right and left as if beset by a whole tribe of warriors. Here, then, was the solution of the mystery. Not then, but in a few hours everything was rendered clear. Among the other traits or peculiarities of his character, California Joe numbered an uncontrollable fondness for strong drink. It was one of his greatest weaknesses, a weakness to which he could only be kept from yielding by keeping all intoxicating drink beyond his reach. It seemed from an after-development of the affair that the sudden elevation of California Joe, unsought and unexpected as it was to the position of chief scout, was rather too much good fortune to be borne by him in a quiet and undemonstrable manner. Such a profusion of greatness had not been thrust upon him so often as to render him secure from being affected by its preferment. At any rate, he deemed the event deserving of celebration, professional duties to the contrary notwithstanding, and before proceeding on the night expedition, had filled his canteen with a bountiful supply of the worst brand of whiskey such as is only attainable on the frontier. He perhaps did not intend to indulge to that extent which might disable him from properly performing his duties, 
but in this like many other good men whose appetites are stronger than their resolutions he failed in his reckoning as the liquor which he imbibed from time to time after leaving camp began to produce the natural or unnatural effect joe's independence greatly increased until the only part of the expedition which he recognized as at all important was california joe his mule no longer restrained by his hand gradually carried him away from the troops until the latter were left far in the rear this was the relative position when the halt was ordered california joe indulged in drink sufficiently for the time being concluded that the best thing would be to smoke nothing would be better to cheer him on his lonely night ride filling his ever-present briarwood with tobacco he next proceeded to strike a light employed for this purpose a storm or tempest match it was the bright and flashing colors of this which had been so suddenly attracted to the attention of the advance guard no sooner was his pipe lit than the measure of his happiness was complete his imagination picturing him to himself perhaps as leading into a grand indian fight his mule by this time had turned toward the troops and when california joe set up his unearthly howls and began his imaginary charge into an indian village he was carried at full speed straight to the column where his good fortune alone prevented him from receiving a volley before he was recognized as not an indian his blood was up all the efforts to quiet or suppress him proved unavailing until finally the officer in command was forced to bind him hand and foot and in this condition secure him on the back of his faithful mule in this sorry plight the chief scout continued until the return of the troops to camp when he was transferred to the tender mercies of the guard as prisoner for misconduct thus ended california joe's career as chief scout another was appointed in his stead but we must not banish him from our good opinion yet as a scout responsible only for himself he will reappear in these pages with a record which rebounds to his credit nothing was accomplished by the four scouting parties except perhaps to inspire the troops with the idea that they were no longer to be kept acting merely on the defensive while the indians no doubt learned the same fact and at the same time the cavalry had been lying idle except when attacked by the indians for upward of a month it was reported that the war parties which had been so troublesome for some time came from the direction of medicine lodge creek a stream running in the same general direction as bluff creek and about two marches from the latter in a northeasterly direction it was on this stream medicine lodge creek that the great peace council had been held with all the southern tribes with whom we had been and were then at war the government being represented at the council by senators and other members of congress officers high in rank in the army and prominent gentlemen selected from the walks of civil life the next move after the unsuccessful attempt in which california joe created the leading sensation was to transfer the troops across from bluff creek to medicine lodge creek and to send scouting parties up and down the latter in search of our enemies 
This movement was made as soon after the return of the four scouting expeditions sent out from Bluff Creek. As our first day's march was to be a short one, we did not break camp on Bluff Creek until a late hour in the morning. Soon, everything was in readiness for the march, and like a traveling village of Bedouins, the troopers and their train of supplies stretched out into column. First came the cavalry, moving in column of fours. Next came the immense wagon train, containing the tents, forage, rations, and extra ammunition of the command, a very necessary but unwieldy portion of the mounted military force. Last of all came the rear guard, usually consisting of about one company. On this occasion it was the company commanded by the officer, whose narrow escape from the Indians while in search of a party of his men who had gone buffalo hunting had been already described in this chapter. The conduct of the Indians on this occasion proved that they had been keeping an unseen but constant watch on everything transpiring in or about the camp. The column had scarcely straightened itself out in commencing the march, and the rear guard had barely crossed the limits of the deserted camp, when out from a ravine nearby dashed a war party of fully fifty well-mounted, well-armed warriors. Their first onslaught was directed against the rear guard, and a determined effort was made to drive them from the train, and thus place the latter at their mercy to be plundered of its contents. After disposing of flankers for the purpose of resisting any efforts which might be made to attack the train from either flank, I rode to where the rear guard were engaged to ascertain if they required reinforcements. At the same time, orders were given for the column of troops and train to continue the march, as it was not intended that so small a party as that attacking us should delay our march by any vain effort on our part to ride them down or overhaul them when we knew they could outstrip us if the contest was to be decided by a race. Joining the rear guard, I had an opportunity to witness the Indian mode of fighting in all its perfection. Surely no race of men, not even the famous Cossacks, could display more wonderful skill and feats of horsemanship than the Indian warrior on his native plains, mounted on his well-trained war-pony, voluntarily running the gauntlet of his foes, drawing and receiving the fire of hundreds of rifles, and in return sending back a perfect shower of arrows, or, more likely still, well-directed shots from some souvenir of a peace commission in the shape of an improved breech-loader. The Indian warrior is capable of assuming positions on his pony, the latter at full speed, which no one but an Indian could maintain for a single moment without being thrown to the ground. The pony, of course, is perfectly trained and seems possessed of the spirit of his rider. An Indian's wealth is most generally expressed by the number of his ponies. No warrior or chief is of any importance or distinction who is not the owner of a herd of ponies numbering from twenty to many hundreds. He has, for each special purpose, a certain number of ponies that are kept as pack animals being the most inferior and in quality and value than the ordinary riding ponies used on the march or about camp or when visiting neighboring villages. 
Next in consideration is the buffalo pony, trained to the hunt and only employed when dashing into the midst of the huge buffalo herds, when the object is either food from the flesh or clothing and shelter for the lodges to be made from the buffalo hide. Last, or rather first, considering its value and importance, is the war pony, the favorite of the herd, fleet of the foot, quick in intelligence, and full of courage. It may be safely asserted that the first place in the heart of the warrior is held by his faithful and obedient war pony. Indians are extremely fond of bartering, and are not behindhand in catching the points of a good bargain. They will sign treaties, relinquishing their lands, and agree to forsake the burial grounds of their forefathers. They will part for due consideration with their bow and arrows, and their accompanying quiver, handsomely wrought in dressed furs. Their lodges even may be purchased at a not unfair valuation, and it is not an unusual thing for a chief or warrior to offer the exchange of his wife or daughter for some article which may have taken his fancy. This is no exaggeration, but no Indian of the plains has ever been known to trade, sell, or barter away his favorite war pony. To the warrior his battle horse is the apple of his eye. Neither love nor money can induce him to part with it. To see them in battle, or to witness how one almost becomes part of the other, one might well apply to the warrior the lines. But this gallant had witchcraft in it, he grew into his seat, and to such wondrous doing brought his horse, as he had been encorpsed and demonatured with the bravest beasts so far he passed my thought, that I in forgery of shapes and tricks come short of what he did. The officer in command of the rear guard expressed the opinion that he could resist successfully the attacks of the savages until a little later, when it was seen that the latter were receiving ascensions to their strength and were becoming correspondingly bolder and more difficult to repulse when a second troop of cavalry was brought from the column as a support to the rear guard. These last were ordered to fight on foot, their horses in charge of every fourth trooper being led near the train. The men being able to fire so much more accurately when on foot compelled the Indians to observe greater caution in their manner of attack. Once a warrior was seen to dash out from the rest in the peculiar act of circling, which was simply to dash along in front of the line of troopers, receiving their fire and firing in return. Suddenly, his pony, while at full speed, was seen to fall on the ground, showing that the aim of at least one of those soldiers had been effective. The warrior was thrown over and beyond the pony's head, and his capture by the cavalry seemed a sure and easy matter to be accomplished. I saw him fall and called to the officer commanding the troops which had remained mounted to gallop forward and secure the Indian. The troop advanced rapidly, but the comrades of the fallen Indian also witnessed this mishap and were rushing to his rescue. He was on his feet in a moment, and the next moment another warrior mounted on a fleetest of ponies was at his side, and with one leap the dismounted warrior placed himself astride the pony of his companion, and thus doubly burdened the gallant little steed with his no less gallant rider 
galloped laggingly away with about eighty cavalrymen mounted on strong domestic horses in full cry after them there is no doubt but that by all the laws of chance the cavalry should have been able to soon overhaul and capture the indians in so unequal a race but whether from a lack of zeal on the part of the officer commanding the pursuit or from the confusion created by the diversion attempt by the remaining indians the pony doubly weighed as he was distanced his pursuers and landed his burden in a place of safety although chagrined at the failure of the pursuing party to accomplish the capture of the indians i could not wholly suppress a feeling of satisfaction if not gladness that for once the indians had eluded the white man i need not add that any temporary tenderness or feelings towards the two indians was prompted by their individual daring and the heroic display of comradeship in the successful attempt to render assistance to a friend in need without being able to delay our march yet it required the combined strength and resilience of two full troops of cavalry to defend the train from the vigorous and dashing attacks of the indians at last finding that the command was not to be diverted from its purpose or hindered in completing its regular march the indians withdrew leaving us to proceed unmolested these contests with the indians while apparently yielding the troops no decided advantage were of the greatest value in view of the future and more extensive operations against the savages many of the men and horses were far from being familiar with the actual warfare particularly on this irregular character some of the troopers were quite inexperienced as horsemen and still more inexpert in the use of their weapons as their inaccuracy of fire while attempting to bring down an indian within easy range clearly proved their experience resulting from these daily contests with the red men was to prove of incalculable benefit and fit them for the duties of the coming campaign our march was completed to medicine lodge creek where a temporary camp was established while scouting parties were sent both up and down the stream as far as there was at least probability of finding indians the party consisting of three troops which scouted down the valley of medicine lodge creek proceeded down to the point where was located and then standing the famous medicine lodge an immense structure erected by the indians and used by them as a council house where once in a year the various tribes of the southern plains were wont to assemble in mysterious conclave to consult the great spirit as to the future and offer up rude sacrifices and engage in imposing ceremonies such as were believed to be appeasing and satisfactory to the indian deity in the conduct of these strange and interesting incantations the presiding or directing personages are known among the indians as medicine men they are the high priests of the red man's religion and in their peculiar spear are superior in influence and authority to all others in the tribe not excepting the head chief no important step is proposed or put in execution whether relating to war or peace even the probable success of a contemplated hunt 
but it is first submitted to the powers of divination confidently believed to be possessed by the medicine man of the tribe he after a series of enchantments returns the answer supposed to be prompted by the great spirit as to whether the proposed step is well advised and promises success or not the decisions given by the medicine man are supreme and admit of no appeal the medicine lodge just referred to had been used as the place of assembly of the grand council held between the warlike tribes and the representatives of the government referred to in the preceding pages the medicine lodge was found in a deserted but well-preserved condition here and there hanging overhead were collected various kinds of herbs and plants vegetable offerings no doubt to the great spirit while in strange contrast to these peaceful specimens of the fruits of the earth were trophies of the war-path and the chase the latter being represented by the horns and dressed skins of animals killed in the hunt some of the skins being beautifully ornamented in the most fantastic of styles peculiar to the indian idea of art of the trophies relating to war the most prominent were human scalps representing all ages and sexes of the white race these scalps according to the barbarous custom were not composed of the entire covering of the head but of a small surface surrounding the crown and usually from three to four inches in diameter consisting what is termed the scalp lock to preserve the scalp from decay a small hoop of about double the diameter of the scalp is prepared from a small width which grows on the banks of some of the streams in the west the scalp is placed inside the hoop and properly stretched by a network of thread connecting the edges of the scalp with the circumference of the hoop after being properly cured the dried fleshy portion of the scalp is ornamented in bright colors according to the taste of the captor sometimes the addition of beads of bright and varied colors being made to heighten the effect in other instances the hair is dyed either to a beautiful yellow or golden or to crimson several of these horrible evidences of past depredations upon the defenseless inhabitants of the frontier or overland immigrants were brought back by the troopers on their return from their scout old trails of small parties of indians were discovered but none indicating the recent presence of a war party in the valley were observable the command was then marched back to near its former camp on bluff creek from whence after the sojourn of three or four days it marched to a point on the north bank of the arkansas river about ten miles below fort dodge there to engage in earnest preparation and reorganization for the winter campaign which was soon to be inaugurated and in which the seventh cavalry was to bear so prominent a part we pitched our tents on the bank of the arkansas on the twenty first of october eighteen sixty eight there to remain usefully employed until the twelfth of the following month when we mounted our horses bade adieu to the luxuries of civilization and turned our faces towards the wichita mountains in the endeavor to drive from their winter hiding places the savages who had during the past summer waged such ruthless and cruel war upon our exposed settlers on the border 
How far and in what way we were successful in this effort will be learned in the following chapter. End of chapter 13